Welcome to Memphis Machine, a Muddy Pig production. I'm Jonathan Bass. And I'm Carl Casperson, and together we're looking to show off the creative sights and sounds of Memphis, Tennessee. Amen. This episode with Paul Taylor is brought to you by Snakebite Company, makers of the original Snakebite bottle opener and Mamba bartending tool. They are 100% made in the USA. Snakebite loves making products and apparel for the happy hours, the after hours, and the weekend hours. When it's your time to relax and be yourself, check them out at snakebiteco, that's snakebiteco.com, and on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at snakebiteco. Get inspired with Redwire. They are experts in audio and visual design and installation in the Mid-South and beyond. Redwire Audio Video specializes in the design, installation, rental, and support of high-quality and affordable custom audio, visual, video, lighting, broadcast, and control systems for worship facilities and large public venues. You can reach them at www.redwireav.com. And of course, get yourself a Soul Burger. Get yourself right now. Get at Ernestine and Hazel's. At Ernestine and Hazel's. No secret by now that this is one of our favorite places in Memphis. Um, they say it's haunted. I haven't seen a ghost is what I'm trying to say. I haven't seen one. No, but everyone else, plenty of people have seen lots of weird things there. And the, the history, go upstairs, see where all the weird stuff went down. See Nate's bar where we tracked um, this particular, no, not Paul's, but we tracked most of our, well, we, well you'll hear us. Yeah, you'll hear us. <laughs> The place has got a lot of vibe. The place has got a lot of vibe. And they're really super nice to us. Speaking of vibe and super nice, Paul Taylor <laughs> uh, agreed to sit down with us. And Paul, uh, we picked Paul because he is one of those working guys. Who is working musicians with Memphis. Yes. Music. And he's just, uh, as, as we call out in the in the episode, he's he's not just a triple threat. He's a quadratic, quadrilant, quadra, quadra threat, quadruped. Coffee hasn't kicked in yet, but Paul is a, is equally gifted songwriter, drummer, bassist, and guitarist. And um, I've gotten producer. to play with, and producer. I've gotten to play with Paul with him hitting the skins, playing drums and guitar, and it's he's marvelous, very gifted, uh, delightful musician, and uh, has some things you know, some thoughts on Memphis. And um, check it out. It should also be mentioned that we recorded this episode at Crosstown Concourse. Yes. And we will get into that in this episode. Crosstown Concourse. Crosstown uh, is a endeavor of revitalizing the Sears distribution building that was vacant and maybe haunted. And the Crosstown Arts <laughs> Cross Studio, Town Art Studio. Where, where, where this was recorded. And they have these amazing internships where musicians and artists uh, of all different mediums are, are being sponsored by Crosstowns to develop their gift and further infect Memphis with beauty and goodness. It's a fantastic program, and we hope you enjoy this interview. Ready, Mr. Bass? Smoke them if you got them. God bless post. <laughs> Ready. Y'all can edit, like, dumb stuff, right? We keep all the dumb stuff as blackmail. Cool. <laughs> <laughs> we might not air it, but we keep it. Well, welcome to another episode of Memphis Machine. We have... We have what I would call a triple threat. Yeah, who doesn't know how to use his iPhone? No, we have, uh, in the theater world, triple threats are regarded to people that can what, Jonathan? I, don't, I have no idea. They can, they can sing. Uh, come on. They can sing. They, they can, can dance, dance. And they can act. That's right. It's called a triple threat. 
And uh, Paul may play another 12 other instruments, but he is known primarily as a drummer, a bassist, and a guitarist. And uh, I just want to bring that up at the top because, you know, uh, the, the qualification being that he works regularly on all three instruments, which I think is pretty cool. Anyway, but uh, welcome to the podcast, sir. Thanks. How about that for an introduction? Well, I'm happy to be here. I think of myself mostly as a songwriter. And he's a, he's a, qu- <laughs> a, a, qu- a quadra threat. Quattro Threat, yeah. Quattro Threat, there, and a song. I, I do threaten people with listening to my songs sometimes, <laughs> so it's, it's true. <laughs> oh, um, you, uh, um, without asking how old you are, I mean, you're you're younger than 50, and you're older than 20. I'm straight up 44, 4'4". Four, four. It's a good drummer's age. Nice, yeah. Nice, even. But you, I mean, you, you've had, I mean, but since uh, since a young age, you've had your uh, finger to the wind of, of Memphis music and Memphis trends and things that make Memphis, Memphis. And, uh, you know, typically we've, with our guests, we've, we've kind of tried to start from the beginning, a little biography. So. So have you, did you grow up in Memphis? Why well, break I four. did. Yeah? Yeah. Um, You're a true, a true Memphian? Uh, the Midtown Memphian to the core Yes. Um, as much good fortune as I've had to travel around and stuff, basically have lived within about a mile of where we're sitting for almost my entire life. That's awesome. Yeah, with very few exceptions. Uh, so you've seen a lot of trends come and go, so to speak? Well, is that, is, define is, trends. I mean, as far as like... What is a Memphis sound? What is what is you know? What, if, if if people think of M- Memphis music, yeah, you, you've, you've been a part of uh, a lot of Memphis music. Sure. Well, I've had the good fortune to grow up around some people who were directly connected to the birth of rock and roll, and and were on the scene in a really culturally important time uh, that a lot of people do sort of define as the iconic Memphis sound time, which you know would be between the fifties and sixties. Yeah. I mean, of course. Memphis music has a storied history that dates further back to the early 20th century. But, you know, if you're talking about Sam Phillips kind of recording a lot of blues artists and searching for, you know, the white guy that could, in, in sort of inventing rock and roll by sort of co opting, like, you know, the, uh, music that was happening that he was you know there's so many reasons why all of the memphis sound sort of happened that were um for lack of a better word not the most positive socio social you know socioeconomic conditions that right. were adverse for people who were uh not white males and um you know, when people talk about, like, we're going to get back to the Memphis sound and we're going to recreate it and there's going to be a big comeback. Well, do you want to bring back, like, segregation and, mm. like, you know, certain people's rights not, not or not having the right to vote and things like that? And, you know, there's a lot of tension and really bad situations that created a lot of the, you know, and that's true of art. arguably in almost any instance that like you know out of very negative situations come you know i think i think the machiavelli family back there and did i say that right machiavelli uh, 
Machiavelli. The Machiavelli. Uh, my, yeah, my wife will correct me later. But you know, the the the, the, rena- the patron, the patrons of the great patrons of the Renaissance, they weren't the nicest people to deal with if you got on their bad side. But boy, they cranked out. They were responsible for a lot of beautiful things. Yeah, for sure. You know. But so my take on you know, I mean, you know, that whole thing about the Memphis Sound is that there's kind of an iconic period. Um, that created a lot of great music and it's great to respect it and study it and to, you know, sometimes play it out live and stuff, but I've never been a fan of the whole concept of like trying to sort of uh, be a revisionist. Or don't let, don't let nostalgia rule the, yeah, rule that's, the form. Yeah, that's probably a better way to put it. Uh-huh. Uh, having said that, I don't know how many countless hours, even this past year, I've spent like learning teeny hodges and and steve cropper guitar parts or studying al jackson and howard grimes and stuff like that i mean mm-hmm. i think it's critically important towards moving forward to acknowledge the past and to study the masters um but it's just like you gotta for me personally at least and this may not be true for other people but i like to assimilate that stuff and then kind of forget about it and just still sort of do cool. my own thing you know Okay, well, well, tell us. So, so your dad, uh, you know, delivered you. Your, your mom and dad delivered you into uh, this era. You know, to where you're now working musician. But how how did how did Memphis inform your dad, thus informing you, thus here you are? Yeah, it's a it is a bit of a it could be a long winded and complicated story. But um, so my dad was a uh, you know a product of he was born in 1949 mm-hmm. and in the mid 60s he was like singing in like uh teenage like garage bands and rock and roll bands around here and he was a rather strikingly handsome young man and he oh. had a great great voice and he was idolized by a lot of like teeny bopper just teenage the teenage crowd he was wildly popular he sang in a band called the village sound that became edgewood and, uh, and it, primarily at first he was a vocalist in these bands and then he sort of picked up guitar along the way. Learned some of his first guitar chords actually from Steve Cropper coming down to a basement where they were all oh, that's like great. rehearsing and like showing them like, you know, this is a G chord. <laughs> uh, my dad went to Messick. Um, and so um, my mom uh, had four sisters and one brother but her eldest sister my aunt jenny who was was known at the time as mary williams uh and they they were a family from fraser um and she uh my aunt was uh just an amazing knockout woman in her own right not to just talk about people's looks or whatever (laughs) but but uh but she was just this like scenester like lady and she wound up marrying a guy named i'm not really sure how this exactly happened but she wound up marrying a guy named jerry williams who co-owned a studio with steve cropper called trans maximus goodness and and also she was a like a b-list staff songwriter for stacks i have all these manuscripts she gave me that are like David Porter, Mary Williams, you know. Goodness. Sir Mac Rice, Mary Williams. She was really close with Mac Rice. She was really good, you know, friends with Priscilla Presley and Elvis. She hung out a lot at, like, both Graceland's and 
was part of like the scene of people who would go like to Liberty Land, you know, after hours and um, like go to the movie theaters. You know, Elvis would rent out the Memphian right over here at Overton Square. And, um, but all of this to say, my dad, Pat Taylor, came into a recording session uh, at Trans Maximus, and because my aunt was married to one of the owners, my mom was a secretary there. Yeah. And my mom was one of the teenage, teeny bopper, like, fan club of my dad anyway. That, like, literally, you know, the times were different back then. People were just kind of naive. If you look at pictures of Beatlemania and stuff, you know, like, they would, like, hide, like, around the corners and giggle at, like, the dudes that they followed around and stuff. Like, and Like they do with jazz musicians. <laughs> right. It's just like we have it when we play yeah, our yeah. jazz shows. You know, like, it's easy for you to comprehend. <laughs> but, so they... I think that was when they first started talking, you know, because my mom was terribly shy and uh, all that to basically, you know, is the way that I sort of rationalize saying if it hadn't have been for Steve Cropper having a recording studio with this guy, Jerry Williams, maybe my mom and dad may not have had the chance to meet and I might not have been born. So all, all thanks to Steve Cropper. Right. And yeah. I, my whole life, I've mostly thought, you know, most of my musical talent stuff comes from my dad because of his career as a musician. But the more in recent years that I've thought about it, I realized that very much like some of my most credible connection, legitimate connection to like Memphis sound and history and stuff is, is from my aunt, who was a songwriter for Stax. And, yeah. you know. It, it it was a late life revelation for me, or a recent life. That's great. Hopefully, this isn't my late life. <laughs> so so becoming, I mean, so you were just expected to uh, pick a pick up an instrument and go, um, or pick up three or four in your case. Well, you know, my dad was then became a guitar player, uh, and he played in a bunch of bands. And he, uh, my mom and dad divorced in the mid seventies when I was a young kid, uh, and so. But then he married another lady named Suzanne Jerome, and they formed a band called The Breaks. Uh, but also my dad um, did a lot of jingle work and session work. He was in studios a lot, and he subsequently became a... He was doing a session with John Hampton one day. The great, famous producer and recording engineer mm -hmm. in Hampton was just like, man, I just wish I could just start over with like I wish I could teach somebody who didn't know anything from scratch what I know and my dad was like dude I'll do that <laughs> that's literally how he became a recording engineer and he wound up having a long career as a recording engineer as well but all that to say that you know my the room we're sitting in right now at my Crosstown Arts Music Residency is sort of a glorified home recording studio and these this room's not unlike a room that is always I've always lived in a house that sort of had a room with drums, bass, and guitars, and recording gear. Right. I mean, back then it was like, you know, Tascam and Fostex four tracks and stuff right. like that. But when I was, you know, five and six years old in the early 80s, my dad was literally helping me four track songs where I was playing chords on a Casio and singing about this girl, Ginger, who I had a crush on in the first grade. Ginger. You know, second grade. And, and, uh, you know, I have tapes and tapes of songs I was writing. And, and because the gear was around, the more I learned how to run it, and he would let me, if I was good, you know, he'd let me, like, use the gear. And um, I wound up really teaching myself sort of my own system of music at the time before I actually learned what was going on um, by sequencing and, and recording music and just sort of figuring out all the parts. And 
and I was a lover of the Beatles and and a lot of song oriented bands. You know, my dad. Uh, one thing that is interesting. Somehow he never really instilled in me much like love of other kind of music or uh, besides like rock and roll or, or just what he was into. And he, his scope wasn't super deep. Honestly, he wasn't like really into jazz or classical music or anything outside of just the popular music that he'd grown up listening to. Right. And it wasn't until a bit later that I started discovering other kinds of music. Um, but yeah, I mean, my the way that I started playing music was kind of by accident. I, I wound up with a like a full size kit of Gretsch drums when I was three years old, uh-huh. and there are tapes of me playing at Ardent. Uh, the recording engineer uh, Ron Capone is like you can hear him on the talk bike going like play a beat, Paul. He was like a real New York guy, <laughs> and I'm like literally going like you can my foot wouldn't reach, but. You can hear that I'm keeping steady eighth notes on the hi-hat and, and a steady two and four and, and just sort of had a natural uh, proclivity towards good timekeeping. Um, That's great. You know, I just feel like I was environmentally conditioned. Mm-hmm. The other side of that is that because my there was the wow factor that I could do that at a really young age and, and all my dad's friends were like, Paul, you're so great. You're going to be such a badass when you grow up. And... Uh, that's kind of what I thought was going to happen. And it's also like what my dad and my mom thought was going to happen. And it really wasn't until a little bit later, like in my early teens, that I started realizing like I didn't understand like the musical language in terms of music notation and and just uh, music theory and things. And then I mm-hmm. had to start like really working. And you... You know, if you have a natural talent and you've sort of built your own system, then you kind of have to work double hard to sort of rearrange your brain patterns and and come to understand the common actual musical language. Right. And uh, But I did. I went up playing like bassoon in seventh grade uh, briefly, and then I sort of transitioned to electric bass. Um, and I became a bass player professionally when I was age 14 by accident because one of my mom's friends uh, who was, I think in his late 20s, uh, asked or he, I just heard him saying to her like he was looking for a bass player, and I was like, "I'll do it." And he was like, "Eh," and, <laughs> but they wound up actually like letting me play bass with them, and and I never had intended to be a bass player, but I was a huge fan already of, um, like the fretless bass. Uh, we had lived in England when I was ten, and I'd been really drawn to like Pino Palladino's fretless bass. Oh playing. yeah, um, I didn't know anything about Jocko yet. This would be a few more years before I'd become a Jocko nerd, for better or for worse. But, um, you know, yeah, it was the, I wound up having like a long career as an electric bassist in town and sort of a music nerdle, nerd thing happening. And uh, it was just a total accident, random, just accepting a gig with this guy. That's know? great. Yeah. And that, that led me to gigging. Do you remember maybe what that first... Uh I don't know. You said you said you were just kind of in the rock and roll thing, and and you remember any occasion where something pulled you away from rock and roll and into other things, classical, jazz, otherwise. You know, a few things. Um, I played in jazz band in high school, and you know, 
my concept of what jazz was was about as far off the mark as it possibly could be i thought it was like old white dudes and suspenders you know uh before that but <laughs> my great teacher bill mckee uh like had us listening to charlie parker and and you know i think it kind of dawned on me that like wow there's this more like deep really like incredible thing and i had uh really somewhat shamefully but also serendipitously i had read uh this obituary of this bass player in like guitar player magazine in 1987 and it was this dude named jaco pastorius and they right. mentioned that he had played with Joni Mitchell. And I'd grown up listening to Joni Mitchell. Like, Blue is one of my parents' favorite records. And it was a record I've grown up with still, to this day, one of my absolute favorite records. But they had mentioned that he played with her. And I was like, oh, I think I've seen some of these records they're talking about in my parents' record collection. And I went, after I read this obituary, and rummaged through. And sure, sure enough, there was Don Juan's Reckless Daughter. And I put it on. And uh, just the... The sound of that fretless bass is so lyrical, and and it was just so revelatory. It like completely changed yeah. my life. Like at that moment, and I was like, if I want to say I was fifteen years old, fourteen, yes, thirteen or fourteen, maybe. Right. Uh, and that really kind of led me to discovering like Weather Report, and you know, getting into fusion and all this stuff that is really. You know, I I don't know if it was the best direction, and I can't regret. You know, you can't look back and have regrets in life, but <laughs> I, I maybe wish that I'd heard more. Like, you know, it would be a couple more years until I'd really discover like Charles Mingus and Thelonious Monk and all the right. standard jazz people that are great. You know, if that answers your question at all, it's all kind of a long-winded circle of. Why I'm the weirdo no, that I am, you know. I mean that 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 thread of uh, of bass playing is um, boy, I mean it's addictive as, as a bass player for sure. I mean because you're just like, holy cow, the the possibilities, uh, and 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 it, the chops that you can gain from uh, yeah, from that 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 regimen. But then also uh, you know, being able just to uh, play a pocket quote kind of gig as well well my you know my first bass playing in the band with the guy was in a band called hoi polloi and his name was david windham and and it was like bruce thomas like colin molding style bass like british pop style like really melodic or paul mccartney obviously duh like melodic bass playing that's stuff i was really drawn to and i was already really into that and also because i was a skateboarder right in the heart of the classic era of the mid and late 80s and uh, so I was, you know, I mean, I played in like some straight edge, like punk bands, hardcore. And uh, but one of my biggest heroes was a guy named Mike Watt, who was in a band called Minutemen and then Firehose. And he's yes. super, super melodic, right. amazing bass player um, who I still to this day just absolutely worship. And um, that had a huge influence on me. But then when I heard. Jocko actually you know like the next year uh, the first thing I heard of his was the super melodic stuff and it was just took my breath away because it was so lyrical and it wasn't very choppy right. but then I think I mentioned it to like my dad's drummer uh, and he was like oh yeah I've got the, his solo record on vinyl I'm gonna let you borrow it and then when I heard like all that stuff yeah. you know him playing Donnelly and uh, I mean it's just like that stuff like 
as a kid, that's when the sort of jock athletic nature kicks in and you're like, that's badass. I want to learn how to do all that flashy stuff, you know, and that can be a, I mean, it can be positive because it can help you aspire to build up your technique, but it can be negative because technique should be, a, a, you know, the ends and the means sort of being like which one, you know, I don't know. I, I, I don't, I don't want to go down too many rabbit holes, but at the same time, I don't mind. But, um, I, I, I've told, I've told people this before, why I like jazz, if they've asked me, uh, in, in, I think if if you look at a pendulum between like let's let's say say punk music on one side of the pendulum and it swings back to like a very heady straight ahead jazz, you know, and, and I know you're a fan of like Ornette and like even some of the more outside rambunctious authors of jazz. I I, I think it it's the same kind of emotional current that's informing both swings of the pendulum. You, I, mean, I don't know if you guys would agree with that or not, but like, well, and it's us yeah, because, because in a punk music you have this, you know, either rage. It's, it's a highly intensive emotive situation, and I would say I experienced that same thing, like in a jazz situation, where just everyone's just kind of, you know, and it could be, you know, for lack of for a really lame term, but you could you could have like methamphetamine on one side and a pharmaceutical grade <laughs> Adderall on the other, but it's yeah. still speed. You're still just going, you know, totally. It's just different. Uh, you know, languages of the same emotion. I mean, yeah. it's like cursing in French or in English, <laughs> or you know, say, singing a nice. love song in French or in English. You know, it's the same. You're just trying to say the same things. They're just coming coming out in a different um, code, right. if you will. But 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 for people that would say, oh, it, 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 jazz is so nerdy, it's so cerebral. I'm thinking, well, yeah, but it's also super highly emotive. Well, of course. I mean, you know. At its root, jazz being uh, African-American uh, art form and arguably one of the greatest things that America has to offer the world yes. ever, yes. but it definitely came, you know, it's an African-American tradition that um, as a, you know, as a white musician, I feel it's important to acknowledge that because to some degree we've co-opted culturally that, but, you know, then you get into like, it's co-opting bad, and, you know, the, it's just a fact of life. That's going to happen in all sorts of, you know, ways. I mean, you know, do we co-opt the behavior of our parents or whatever, uh -huh. you know, how, to what degree do you want to take that kind of thing? But I think as long as you're coming from an honest place and also to realize that all these years later now, it means something entirely different. But in its root form, you know, it also is related to blues and, and, and uh, there were, again, the same like socioeconomic conditions and adverse, horrible treatment of black folks that uh you know mm -hmm. i mean for lack of a better word creates created a very soulful thing in a lot of the best musicians you know um and it's not super clinical i mean you know you listen to charlie parker or ornette uh and there's like a love cry and an anguish cry or if you listen you know i mean i just feel like that's true of mm -hmm. even you know a lot of different people i did want to get back to not to say in and out, but just to kind of finish the nerdy bass player segment of my life. Uh, one day, one of my dad's musician friends came over. Uh, he was an electric bass player who had studied with Tim Goodwin, and he showed me in one sitting uh, the Head to Ornithology, How High the Moon, and Teen Town, ah. all on the bass. <laughs> uh, like, and I learned all of them like 
in the matter of like an hour and a half, just as a mimic, like not understanding the theory, but certainly learning how to, you know, I, I learned really fast how to play them, and I was just really into it. And then another musician friend of my dad's who played in a lot of bands with him was the great, brilliant local Memphis musician mind, Sam Shoup. Oh, yeah. And he, um, he was so impressed, I guess, with my playing and my enthusiasm towards music that he... Um, gave me his 1968 Fender Jazz Bass <sighs> fretless nice and so I that was that was like 15 years old I think and so I really learned most most of my formative years of actually learning like how to play music was on this fretless bass and um did, did I, owe, I owe all of those guys like a tremendous debt of gratitude for their kindness and just yeah. like their belief in me and you know, to some, I didn't wind up becoming an extremely well-studied jazz musician by any stretch of the means. I'm way too all over the place with my multi-instrumentalism and, and all that stuff for to be like, I just don't have the time to dedicate to anyone. My One of my teachers and friends as a drummer, actually, is Alvin Fielder, the great jazz drummer. But he was like, Paul, you're a jack of all trades and a master of none. And I just, it hurt me really bad when he said that. It was in my early 20s, but it's always stuck with me, and I've, I had to realize that it's true. And, you know, I'm just going to make the weird uh, original left-of-center music that I make. I have to kind of be at peace with the fact that I'm not going to be, like, a super high-level bebop musician, you know. No. Uh, but I'm still super grateful to those jazz guys for teaching me all that stuff. Yeah, although, I mean, both Jonathan and myself have played with you, and, 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 and you hang as well as <laughs> Well, I can else. fake it as a drummer can, be better than I can. <laughs> Better than I could, like I couldn't, you know, I, I do study and deeply love jazz as a guitarist and I've definitely tried to spend some time with it. But, you know, I think to really do that at a high level, you need to just do that and do that every day. And, you know, talk really th talking about like high level, you know, right. cool jazz, post-bop, bop, like language stuff. Uh, man, that's just something that I don't know that I have enough. Well, time I think you're right though. to I mean, do the, that and do the other stuff I want to do. But the question is, it's exactly right. I mean, do you just want to do that? Right. Right. I mean, and and, and and we know in this business there are guys who 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 play very minimalistic, who have who are just who just play at, at at barely level who have homes in Malibu and oh, yeah. uh, right so so you know the, the the quirky side of this but so but I would say a, a qualification for sure as to your abilities on all instruments you, you regularly get called to gig on all three instruments I do you uh, do and, that, you and, Memphis, know, and Memphis is not a weenie music town you, you got to be able to play yeah well and I'm know. really non-denominationally speaking blessed to have been environmentally conditioned <laughs> to like grow up in a house full of it. I mean, in a room much like, I mean, it's why I can at a relatively credible level play all three of those instruments. And, and maybe you speak know. to, uh, 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 you know, our, our upcoming musicians who might be listening to this, the importance that you, you know how each instrument is supposed to function. Right. That, that, Talk well, about that. That, that. that is the truth, and I think that especially as a drummer. I mean, we talk about Jocko. We talk about... Yeah, let, so let's talk about the drumming thing, man. Like, the best drummers, the best jazz drummers, the most technical jazz drummers, the most technically brilliant, who execute it in a way that is the most fun to listen to, mm -hmm. all of them are, like, great writers and pianists and 
composers. Tony Williams, Joe Chambers, Max yeah. Roach. You know, Dijonette, I think, right? Dijonette, of course. Peter Erskine? Uh, Peter Erskine. There yeah. you go. Yeah, I mean, the list could probably go on and on. Uh, my mind always thinks of the great drummer Joe Chambers just because I'm a huge fan of his uh, and like the songs that he wrote that are, or compositions rather, I guess you would call them, that were on like uh, Bobby Hutcherson records that mm. are just such amazing tunes. They're so well written and his playing is so fire on them, you know? And I think that if there's any reason that I would hope people call me to play music with them is because like I'm just real sympathetic to what I'd want to hear for on the other instrument. Mm-hmm. You know, if I'm playing bass with people, I try to come from the fact that first and foremost in my mind I'm a songwriter and a song thinker and and uh you know, I want to be sympathetic to what the songwriter or bass player or drummer would want to hear in any opposite situation that I'm in or if I'm playing guitar. You know? Can you talk about that, actually? Uh, you're approaching playing as a songwriter. Uh, can yeah. you? Well, you know, for one thing, I make a lot of music with people who are playing songs. And yet I have, you know, also had a lot of experience chopping out or whatever and you don't want to chop out over somebody's lyrics and that's also true of you know in a jazz setting i think the best music i mean like take for example like the uh like keith jarrett trio like the gary peacock jack dijonet i mean it kind of sounds like they're all soloing at once but somehow they're not stepping on each other and i would venture to say if you asked any one of them they would probably be like it's because they're listening more than they're thinking about what they're playing and so it's crucial to be in the mindset where you're allowing you're not dominating the time or trying to drive the boat I mean as a drummer you do have to drive the boat sometimes especially if you feel people dragging or rushing or whatever you may need to commandeer the time Mm -hmm. but in general you kind of hope that the vibe and the direction harmonically time wise and uh, syncopation wise like are all sort of happening between everybody you know and that uh, you know just comes from people who write songs and think, yeah. think about it from that kind of more empathetic place empathy is the most important factor the good asset you know, yeah. I saw recently, of all people, but Carlos Santana, like, was it was like some Eric Clapton crossroads thing that was on the music channel or something. And I'm not a huge Eric Clapton fan or Carlos Santana. I mean, not, I am of like early stuff, like, certainly his like Blues Breakers and mm-hmm. Cream stuff. But uh, I just happened to catch this one little clip where he was talking, Carlos Santana, in this interview. And he said that. John Lee Hooker had said to him, like, just go out there and give them chills. And that really, like, summed up exactly the way that I think you should, that I like to approach almost any instrument or solo that I'm taking these days. It's like, Mm -hmm. what can I do that's more, like, meaningful in a way that's going to hopefully raise the hair on somebody's arms? As opposed to, man, I've been practicing these groupings of five and this altered scale and, you know, 
now's my time to execute that over this chord change. Like, <laughs> that's not going to be as meaningful as, like, just the intent. It's almost like there's this, um, the electricity that drives you, you just kind of change the voltage for a minute. Right. And, it, and you can just send it. A prime example of somebody who does that is, um, well, my friend Eric Gales. Yeah. He does that. He could just take one note. Uh, but Derek Trucks is another great example, um, you know, of, of that vibe. So speaking of Eric Gales, I mean, how, how, how long have you been playing with Eric? Eric and I met when we were, uh, well, I was like 17. He was actually a drummer and vibraphonist at the Overton uh, High School Jazz Band. Wow. And um, there was some like high school jazz band convention thing at Central High School where I went and uh, met him there you know yeah I wanted to mention I did grow up playing with um some other second generation musicians please uh, yeah because that made me think I met him when I met him I was with uh, my central high school jazz band cohort Steve Selvage who I still make music with yeah and the sons of mud boy uh, his dad and these guys I played with Luther and Cody Dickinson um their dad was a pr- very important producer uh from memphis named jim dickinson and he worked did a lot of stuff you just really have to look him up to kind of find out and there's some incredible videos on youtube Hmm. where he talks about his philosophies and concepts i encourage anybody who's serious about music to watch those videos but there's really not a song informed decision that i make uh musically that didn't somehow come from some wisdom i learned from him Right. He was just very wise. He had been around. He was directly, you know, had a direct link to the early days of Memphis music. Um, he was on the scene, you know. He recorded a single at Sun, you know, uh, and, and then went on to form, like, this band called uh, Mud Boy and the Neutrons that was with uh, Steve's dad, Sid Selvage, and Jimmy Crosswaite, who... Uh, is the last man standing all, all of their dads and my dad, you know, have all passed away, but we all continue to make, uh, their dad's music and that musical tradition. They do way more than I do. I've kind of drifted off from it, but, uh, spiritually always be there, uh, called sons of mud boy. Yeah. But it's super important. Um, part of my life always are the musical ethics and and credos and and just uh production advice that i got from him right and just etiquette like musical etiquette and studio etiquette and uh so much mentorship yeah pretty much yeah. i mean you know i think that's what we all need and 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 people of my age group you know are lucky because we got to have connections to people like him who were directly on the scene and also as a drummer i mean i got to sub for renardo ward at king's palace in the mid 90s you know late late 90s playing with uh charlie wood the great organist but when charlie wasn't there it would be honeymoon garner would be the organ player and i mean calvin newborn was the guitar player on that gig and i mean like i subbed for a month for renardo when he went to play with the jazz faculty of u of m in africa and um and and i would do a lot of subbing for him there and that's really how I learned how to be a jazz drummer. Or I learned to trust my sense of time. Yeah. Charlie Wood would play so ahead of the beat. Calvin Newborn, or just right on top of it, rather. And Calvin would play all over it. And 
it was for, you know, the first few times I ever did it, I really failed because I just didn't know how to trust that I was going to have to. Oh, man. Lay it down, you know. But uh, like Honeymoon Garner, like needed a ride home like every single time that he did that gig. So I would take him home and he would regale me with stories of the days of old, you know. Wow. Like uh, played bass with Ann Peebles on a tour in the mid-90s and uh, James Mitchell was one of the horn players, Willie Mitchell's brother, who really made all the horn arrangements and uh, all the stories that he gave. But the point, all of that's a kind of long-winded way to get back to what I was starting to say about 60 seconds ago, which is that people of our generation are lucky to have direct connections to people who are really on the scene of those formative Memphis music years. And what is going to happen now is that it's going to be more distilled through the generations uh, because there will be like less direct connections. And yeah, it'll I mean, be important I, for dudes like me to hopefully remember what they said and, and accurately reproduce it. And that's kind of impossible because, man, my memory's not all that great. And it just kind of seeped into some weird, like, amorphous vibe. And, you know, that will be lost. But I guess there will be new lessons and there will be new music created and, you know. I mean, how, how do you get that through YouTube? Well, I know, but at the same time, man, for all of the amazing experiences that I had, I also, you know, was a dumb, lazy guy for most of my life. And really, I've learned more technical things from YouTube myself. Right. You know, as a four, late 30s to where I am now as a 44-year-old, I've probably practiced harder now and have learned more in the past five years than ever in my life, mm. you know. Um, I still, if if I will actually say that I want to know more about music now than I ever did in the past. Yeah. Strange, but true. That's good. Um, one other thing to that point, though, about, you know, the older generation, and I guess which really ties into your very first question about, like, trends in Memphis is, you know, can't be too precious about it and you can't hang on to the concept that there is this one iconic time. I mean, you have to pay respect to it, but also, I mean, it's all going to change and right. you can't guard that. It's just more apparent now because we have like electricity and recorded doc. I mean, the reason that all of this is happening at all is because we're, our lives are coincident with this new invention, relatively new invention called electricity and the, and like music being recorded. And, and, uh, that created this culture where like you could sell these things called records, but really it's all like a artifice of the real thing. It's not like the way that music has always actually been for millennia, which is, resonating tones in a room with people and with your friends and your brothers and you know it's a western culture like phenomena yeah i you're preaching the truth i hope that well i mean my wife and i the gospel of live performance is is, is important i think as i hope as people become more saturated even more so with digital media and just on demand everything that people will start to crave and be lonesome for humans making stuff, especially, you know, either, either like live uh, theater, live musicals or opera and, and, and music to like, my goodness, there's human beings doing things not too far away from me. 
and because because it's a different animal altogether. It's a, it's a refreshing for people who stare at things that are created by ones and zeros all day long. You know, and also, yeah. I mean, you hear the same tones the same algorithms without knowing it because it's all going through the same mastering gear and the same like DAWs and stuff yeah. like that so yeah. like in some weird way the dithering and uh, the processing <laughs> and the converting is all probably just the same stuff regurgitating what you think is sounding like different music but it's probably exhausting all of us and it's changing our brains in ways that we can't well, and fathom it's, and it's not the it's not the air that's moving right <laughs> in the yeah. location where the music is being played it's true yeah and that's, that's i mean well, I, I go ahead no i actually go ahead yeah we can edit this. no just one one last well no just to tag when when jonathan and i first met we discovered we both like wayne krantz we're both wayne krantz such a badass effect oh my gosh such a weirdo it, it's just ridiculous tell you what yeah and, and and i got to go see him i was in new york and i got to go down to bar 55 and i got to see anthony jackson keith carlock oh and wayne krantz just duke it out and i, I was i was at the bar and i just i could reached over and, and just wiped Mr. Krantz's nose for him, which would have been a bad idea, but, but, but just, <laughs> but just be, I mean, the, the, you know, and anyone who enjoys live music, you, you just, it, it was overwhelming. It was like a tsunami of just my brain being fried, just emotionally being just, you know, all of it. And, and, and he makes at the time he had a, um, a couple DPA microphones and he would make a stereo recording and he would, uh, you could go on his website, drop five bucks, and download the entire set. Yeah, and I remember being so excited to I couldn't wait, and I, I you know I got home from my trip, and I looked it up I'm like, oh man, my night's there. You know, and I download it and I play it back, and I was like, huh, well, that, you know, yeah, that's cool. Yeah. Like like it was so it was still great, but it was so underwhelming compared to being there. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Go ahead, man. It, well, you yeah, know, I want to get back to the the thought that, you know, for one thing, like, my faith is huge. The younger generation, I mean, I've had the great fortune lately of making music with a lot of people who are literally half my age, um, and they're phenomenal musicians. And interestingly enough, a lot of them don't have the same um, influences completely new set of influences and right. people who are alien to me but they're still making beautiful music it's just coming from a place that maybe you or I wouldn't expect it and I think that's part of the change that you know we as old people have to like sort of embrace right and, and so I was going to ask this earlier and now we might not have to edit this back into the beginning no um, so talking about change and that very thing you, you just said not holding on to stuff like uh, um, yeah I think we asked this of Richard to Cushing um I mean, you've been in Memphis for a long time, and what changes? Like, you know, for, we can just start at Midtown. If you yeah. Want to. Like, what, what changes in the scene have you have you observed well, in your life downtown? It's wherever, funny. I've been saying this a lot lately, and I'm I'm really happy to say it here. Um, in a way that probably seemed curmudgeoning, and also, you know, as a personal note, I've just become a more at peace and happier person. There are a whole lot of other things that happen in my life that precipitated me being somewhat of a loner and not having a really easy time making music with people or being friends with people. I like, I just did, uh, it took a lot for me to get to where I am now as a human being. And I'm a late bloomer in terms of being at peace and, and 
being easy to be around at all. But I often have had the curmudgeon attitude that it made me really mad when people were like, Memphis music is coming back and blah, blah. And I was always like, man, that's silly and, and not true. And you just need to let the old stuff die or whatever. But I can say with 100% confidence that right now, I've never seen so such a, a just renaissance of great playing and scenes that are all just kicking ass and amazing musicians, amazing, so many great songwriters, so many great players, everybody's cool with each other, people are putting out great records. There are a lot of recording studios that are like working here. Yeah. Uh, there are some that aren't functioning as well as they should, but I mean... Things are happening in a very positive way here, and I am old enough to have seen that not happen here for a very long time. And I guess what I was trying to say is I'm, I'm not sure if that was because I was a curmudgeon and had my eyes closed to it, or if it's just really true that, like, right now, finally, things are truly coalescing in Memphis in a way that is very fertile for creation. And I'm super stoked to get to be a part of it, you know, as an old man. I think you're kind of blessed if you get a little bit of uh you know any sort of situation in your life that um you know to be able to kind of well it's it is one thing jim dickens it's just great to be able to burn along steadily for a long time than to just sort of flash (laughs) and sort of fade out but so it's been great to sort of hang around and get to see and make music with these people who are just absolutely inspiring now you know such as current artists that that you're digging man i you know i hate to say this but i don't want to name anybody at the risk of excluding somebody else because if i do then i will forget other people but i can tell you there are a lot of great artists that are well worth seeking out here right you know yeah Okay, all right. I won't, I put, mean, I won't you push know. you on that, but yeah, that's, that's all right. Uh, Saw that one coming. <laughs> <laughs> <But>. <laughs> okay, okay, but okay, as an art, okay, not only are you a uh, uh, a competent sideman, a sought after, let's just, you know, yeah, you're a sought after competent sideman because you keep getting called back. Uh, if, mostly. If, if, mostly. <laughs> <laughs> But you're also an artist. Back to the songwriting thing, and you, and you have sure. coming up. Uh, you're debuting an EP now. You've you've released music before. Yeah, I have a few records right? floating out there. Some of them I again would rather not, almost rather not list because I'm, you know, man. Well, you know, they're it, ten years old, and I'm not so happy. Okay, but like you said, like with you, 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 the last five years have been very inspirational for you. You've been studying, sure. you've been cranking. So so talk I'm about, about to release a ton of music. Talk about the thing that's coming up. Uh, well, I, I imagine by the time this blog comes out, this will have already happened, but uh, I'm releasing an EP called The Old Force Loop. Yes. Um, let me go back for a second. Please. Y'all probably realize by now I can be quite long-winded and have to talk in circles. No, it's great. The, the That's comput- why we're doing the, a podcast. Yeah, the computer loves it. It's, it's all good. Right. Yeah. <laughs> well, in 2015, I, uh, my dad passed... Uh, after a long battle with cancer and there was all this acoustic music I would take my guitar and play by his bedside uh-huh. and just go hang out with him and play guitar and I had all these little ditties that I'd sort of they were kind of peaceful pretty guitar things and and when he passed and I was spending a lot of time uh, at a place I love a lot you know, the trails in Overton Park walking my dog 
uh, those trails are called the Old Forest Trail. And I realized, like, wow, I'm going to make this into, like, an EP. And so in the, the fall of 2015, I uh, released only on Bandcamp um, an EP called the Old Forest Trail. It's mostly acoustic, like, solo acoustic guitar stuff. Uh-huh. Um and then the next year in 2016, they like changed the name of the Old Forest Trail in Overton Park to the Old Forest Loop, and they took all the like beautiful old signage out and replaced it with like these like look like totem poles from like the zoo, the Memphis Zoo, like mm. the way that they're kind of their aesthetic is of like these like sure. tan stones. Uh, and I was like, this is gross. This is horrible. <laughs> but then, so I was really pissed off for a while. But then I was like, well, what if um. My initial thing is, what if I remixed all of the Old Forest Trail stuff into an electronic thing and call it the Old Forest Loop? But that wound up not really being practical, so I just wound up recording some kind of psychedelic lo-fi experimental, elect- not electronic, but electric music uh, as the follow-up to Old Forest Trail and called it the Old Forest Loop. Nice. And so I'm releasing that. Um, it's coming out. Friday the 13th of July 2018 it'll already be out by the time people hear this Um, if anybody makes it this far in this podcast they hear that (laughs) but that's kind of you know my songwriting like um, I have two records out like on Apple Spotify the first one is called Open Closed it's from 2007 and the follow up to that was called Share It 2009 and they're wildly eclectic records stylistically they're all over the place and um especially back then like my voice was just not i really don't think i'd found myself Mm -hmm. i was trying to sing more affected like alex chilton or like british people i was into like xdc or you know whatever and i was trying not to sound like my dad who had a really wholesome and great singing voice but i always thought was like you just don't want to be like your dad, you know? Aww. And the yeah. more that I've allowed myself to sing like who I really am and it sounds like him, the more I've found a good singing voice. And, um, but all that to say, the Old Force Loop is a kind of off-the-cuff instrumental, most, there's one song that's got lyrics on it, but they're obscured by like a flanger. Um, and it's a protest song. But it's a mostly instrumental EP that's just kind of off-the-cuff, lighthearted vamps. There's not a lot of overt melody, not a lot of overt chord progression. It's kind of more coming from the place of groove and just vibes. And it's uh, a palate cleanser of my past and a warm-up to stuff I plan on releasing in the future. I'm going by a new band name called The New Memphis Colorways. Actually, new, no the, but it's New Memphis Colorways. Color waves or waves? Color ways, W-A-Y-S. All right. Color waves. Yeah. Uh, But so it's just an introduction to a kind of new ethic for me of stuff that's maybe coming from a different place than my normal songwriting. I'll still release records under Paul Snowflake Taylor as as a songwriter. But the instrumental side will be uh, well. I had a instrumental, a very weird leftronica, as I called it, project in the early two thousands called Intero Bang, and it was I like, love it. That's it was great. like all kinds of. I was playing uh, samplers and children's toys and CNCs and 
sequenced a bunch of music on the PlayStation 1 and just there was this huge rig I would bring out for live shows <laughs> and and um talking to mind you this is before flat screen TVs or like really computer monitors uh were just easily available so I'd bring like a tube TV out <laughs> and you know just crazy stuff but I am releasing also so that's the first thing I'm releasing and then this probably starting late summer if not early fall I'm gonna release three more EPs but they will be Paul Snowflake Taylor's song uh, I recorded a record two years ago um, I thought it was the best work I'd ever done and I pitched it to all these local labels and it got like flat out rejected by everybody but again it was because my, the music I write is just wildly all over the place and it's interesting man I played it for a lot of young people and they all love it I cool. think young kids these days really dig all kinds of stuff the, yes and I hate to say this because it's no mark against my record label owning local buddies who I do a lot of session work for and stuff but I think it was rather short sighted and, and close minded of them to not understand that they didn't have to be able to pigeonhole or market a record as one thing if they could just let me be my weird self that probably would be cool in the eyes of a lot of people yeah but that was not to be and for a while i was really kind of upset about it but then it also dawned on me well maybe i could compromise and sort of organize these songs into three eps that were all sort of fit with each other so one of the eps is kind of the bluesier stuff one of the EPs is the more like slow, wintry, songy stuff. And the other one's the more like power pop stuff. And that was all jumbled into one big long record. Now it's three EPs, um, which is called The Music Stands with a period at the end of it. Um, so it's like The Music Stands. Um, and that's the three EPs that I'm releasing. Um, that's fantastic. After the old Forest Loop. Yeah, Jonathan, your kids are... How, how old's your oldest? Nine? Is that oldest right? is well, he will be nine. He will be nine. Okay. My daughter's sixteen, and, and I mean her and her music. If, if if she you could call her a product of of today's, I mean it, her her music uh, taste is is as as varied. I mean it's YouTube based. I mean she she loves Halo. She listens to the Halo soundtrack. Interesting. She loves some old nerdy stuff I put on her radar. Dig and then she's just, I mean, it is it is all over the place. So, I mean, probably a good thing of our modern culture, people are actually more open to a broader spectrum of, of sounds. Yeah. Than, I think than, than in a long time. Man, I just always subscribe to the old Duke Ellington adage that, uh, you know, there are only two kinds of music, really, good music and bad music. And to that, I add that, like, often I like bad music too <laughs> there should be room for all of it yeah. yeah speaking of rooms we're in the crosstown oh yeah you guys are in my residency you, you residency are you are the studio. initial yeah. uh, uh, what would you call inaugural the, uh, inaugural uh, the inaugural music resident of art, crosstown you, art space you could say artist zero artist zero <laughs> is, is that yeah. well you know I mean <laughs> Yeah, it's amazing. Probably <laughs> hard to describe the room we're in, but it's like a glorified project studio slash rehearsal space that's also got like some cool vintage lamps and yes. chairs and couch in it. So can we talk about the program, the residency? Yeah, or? for sure. Yeah. Um, Crosstown Arts 
is a nonprofit. You know, I'm not really sure how to describe what it is they do, but they, you know, host art events and uh, have a lot of like art for initiatives that they execute. And I, don't, I don't really know. Actually, it's really dumb of me that I don't really know how to describe who they are or what they do. But one thing they they were uh, they were really the driving force behind the the renovation and the reinvigoration of this uh, Sears Crosstown building, which has become the Crosstown Concourse. Yes. They were the driving force. Uh, one of the co-founders of Crosstown Arts was one of the main architects. And they're just amazingly forward-thinking people who created this like city within a city. It's like a yeah. utopian microcosm um, inside of these walls. And for those who don't know, they should just look up the Crosstown Concourse website right. to see pictures it's a massive multi-million square footage like giant brick building that used to be like one of the sears main distribution centers right in, in the southeastern united states um and this building is one of the like most massive buildings in america i believe um in terms of square footage right but um Crosstown Arts is hosting, now that this building is open, one of their things they did was they were hosting artist residencies for visual artists or artists of all mediums. And uh, I caught wind of that in 2016. I mean, that's when this building was still like under major renovation, like it was gutted. Uh, but I emailed Crosstown Arts and I was like, are you going to do music residencies? And they replied that they had been thinking about it, but they weren't really sure what that was going to look like. And they knew who I was. And so they were like, do you want to go have lunch and talk about this? And I sort of wound up consulting, doing like consultation about what it would be. And I kind of built this or advised, you know, that my ideal music residency space would be not unlike a, the rooms I've grown up in, which would be just a, a, a room that had, you know, a computer that had Pro Tools and Logic. And I mean, the, the iMac over there has, you know, Ableton, Logic, Pro Tools, which is what I'm most familiar with. Yeah. Um, and it's got Premiere Pro and Photoshop, the full Adobe suite. Adobe suite. Mm. And uh, there's some nice monitors over there. There's a little PA system in here, a drum set, um, a bass amp, a guitar amp. I mean, they backlined this whole room so that basically a, a, a musician could come in and create. And create. And, you know, I'm not sure, honestly, how many musicians or multi-instrumentalist people who are very recording savvy of their own that the space would be beneficial for. But certainly all of those things are available. And it's like a great what I've wound up doing, strangely enough, more than sort of the thing I've always done, um, which is record myself playing all the instruments on my songs. But I've actually wound up hosting all the bands I play in rehearsing and I've recorded. I've kind of got it set up to where. People could just come in and and it's ready to roll and they don't really feel like red lights going, clock's not ticking like it would be in a studio and I'm getting really great sounds in here. And um, that's been the big revelation for me is that I sort of have realized that I really sort of enjoy playing the role of recording engineer and producer myself. And um, the other big thing is there was a huge, huge, huge revelation for me is that like going somewhere else 
leaving my abode. Right. Not just going into my room where I could sure shut the door or do it, but like leaving, driving or riding my bike or sometimes I skate here, like whatever, like coming to this room and, and feeling the palpable huge amounts of energy that are like in the mid central atrium out there. Um, the, and the, then coming the, back the ice here, cream, the ice cream. Oh, the ice cream too. But like, it's just oh, so gosh. important to like go do it somewhere else, you know? Why, why is that? Because I, I have a home room and it's, I work out of there, but I, yeah. It's, have you thought, what is the psychological reason why? The there's idea something of going about, to work there's, uh, right? I forget, but nice. I did read like a study on thresholds. There's something that changes, uh, like your brain, like patterns are altered just in different ways. And I, I don't know that. That's about all I can remember about that. But you like it. I mean, it's working for you. Well, it's incredible yeah. to, to feel. Uh, it just gives you more of a sense of maybe purpose, Ugh. you know, perhaps. That's wonderful. It's not as easy to just go, well, I'm just going to go <laughs> watch TV now or whatever. <laughs> yeah. I can get a lot done binge watching Sherlock Holmes. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, but this this residency program is amazing. They have people from all over the world doing shorter. I, I have a long residency because um, I've been you know fine tuning this room for them. And uh, but I've met people from all over the world, like of multi like different artistic walks. How many disciplines are, are represented here? We've got well, there's sculpting, painting, dancing, music, woodshop. Well, there's a woodshop, state of the art woodshop. Yes. There's going to be a shared art space that you can sort of subscribe to. Um, That's fantastic. It's an incredible place here. Yeah. It really is. And and they're hosting. There's also a theater being built here that's like state of the art that they'll have concerts. And oh, good. Very cool. It's far out. I've, and, I've and you're stoked. hosting you're hosting your EP concert here as oh, well. Oh yeah. Well, I mean. Again, not that anybody probably will hear this before then, but I'm going to do this weird experimental jam session for my EP release. Yes. Um, which is going to be contingent upon, hopefully, musicians all and dancers and rappers and loop station people, A, showing up, and B, being empathetic with each other. Because, uh, well, a friend of mine, I've made... A really good connection and friendship with a person who had one of the first artist residencies that was my direct neighbor here is a, um, a brilliant thinker and artist named S.O. Tolson, who now works for Crosstown Arts. But we're going to kind of co-host my EP release. And he hosts these shows called The Artistic Lounge, and he has a band called The Artistic Duo. It's a, it's a duo, but they're like an acapella looping band. Oh, cool. And... Um, he and I have talked about one thing we want to do here uh, at the concourse in the future is maybe do a monthly like open jam session for improvisers where we sort of maybe do a 10 minute opening loop improv together and where we could illustrate a few things. One, like it's okay to fall on your face and make mistakes. Mm -hmm. Two, it's more important to listen to the other person than it is to think about what you're doing because oftentimes people get in a situation like that and they just start doing their thing. You yeah. know? I'm guilty of it. We're all guilty of it. It happens. I mean, the other thing is we're human. We're all going to do that sometimes. But 
to kind of hopefully set your mind frame up at the beginning to be more empathetic. Anyway, we would hopefully do all that subconsciously in a live improv at the beginning of these jam sessions, and then we're going to do a play-by-play afterwards where we kind of analyze what we did. A post-mortem? Yes, where we sort of talk about, you know, why did we make the decisions we made subconsciously or whatever. That actually reminds me, another thing I've been doing in this room is interviewing other people. I've become the interviewee. Yes. When normally I have people sitting right where I'm sitting on this couch, and I've been interviewing, uh, like I interviewed Eric Gales and Luke oh, Dickinson. We'll have to put a link to that. Um, yeah, Kenny Crossway, yeah. Art Emerson, and Mark Franklin. I'm about to interview a whole host of other people. Fantastic. Um, but I also have a podcast. It'll probably be a podcast in the long form. And there, I've been videoing them as well. And there's going to be a uh, like a more truncated mm-hmm. video component to each episode. But we've all been collaborating on a musical piece that's growing overdub wise, vertically and horizontally. It's growing an exquisite corpse of music because I'll let the people who go that way only hear a few seconds of the end of one piece, and then it goes forward. So. If you're familiar with the drawing oh, wow. exquisite corpse where you draw something on a piece of paper right. but you can only right. see the lines of the folded part and you could draw whatever you want um it occurred to me you could do like a musical version of that by only letting them hear the very tail end of something you right. know? wow so when, when, when are you gonna when's that available? well what i think is gonna happen is because I, i'm really just creating so much content in this room now and my time's running out here but it may be best to leave editing and polishing and finishing a lot of those projects um for when i'm done here because it's stuff i can do on my own pro tools rig at home Mm -hmm. when i'm having the huge crash about uh being sad that my residency (laughs) is over i'll i'll still at least have a lot of work to do like finishing it (laughs) while you're binge watching we need to make a trio record while you're binge watching sherlock holmes you can edit right searching for purpose but speaking of we should all do some trio recording here while i am not opposed to that at all that would be awesome carl you and i did a yes recording here with the brilliant Pianist and vocalist Catherine Headland. Yeah, oh, Headland. Yeah, yeah she's every, great. Everything she does is like it, it doesn't look like it's that hard to her at all. Yeah, yeah she's fabulous. Sing, sing, singing further? in singing in tune is not hard for her, nor playing well is hard is not hard for her. How much more can I talk about myself? It's been good. It's, yeah, been, it's, been, been, great, it's yeah. been a good run, man. Uh, I'm really not this self we concerned. Asked, well, it's just good to reflect. I mean, I, I, think, I think you got some good things to say to. Uh, I always like I always like the pedal, you know, you, the mentorship aspect of like you know the pedagogy of like, hey, I would love for up and coming people to kind of be like, oh, a little headspace, you know. Adjustment. Well, you know, and that does kind of bring up a point that you know, you asked me to plug some musicians who are great on the scene right now, but if there's anybody that we should be seeking out, it's the older ones, Ed Finney. Yeah, brilliant jazz guitarist. Make a point to go see him at every opportunity that you can. Yes, he right. changed my life when I was 16 years old at the Babylon Cafe. I stumbled across this old psychedelic hippie-looking dude who was playing bebop guitar solos without any accompaniment and harmonizing them with his voice. Oh wow! And I might have been under the influence as a teenager of some things, but it changed my <laughs> life all the way around. And these days, I get to call him a friend and make music with yeah. him. You know, and um. You know, 
I just think of people like that. Howard Grimes, anytime you see that he's playing drums, like you should go see him play drums. Who, who's he hitting with uh, lately? Well, Bo Keys. Okay. When they play, I know right. that he he's often the drummer. Mm-hmm. Um, Charles yeah. Hodges, you know those those guys who are still with us. Leroy Hodges, the flick, the the brilliant bass. I mean, those are the guys that played on. The you mentioned Sam, Sam Shoup plays out. Well, Sam Shoup, of course. I mean, this guy, he's uh, one of the professors of jazz now. Yeah. Uh, at U of M, and I can't say enough about what a brilliant mind he is, and he exemplifies being a musical thinker over being a technical musician player. As a matter of fact, I'm ashamed. I have a hard time. I don't know if Sam will ever hear this. I almost cry saying this, but like, I have a hard time making music with Sam because I'm so nervous to play around him because I know that he can hear everything so well that it just makes, there are very few, really, I don't have a hard time playing with just about anybody. He's one of those people that I freeze up every time we make music together. I second guess everything I do because I just know he can hear it, you know? Right. And, but he's a, a, very giving person he did a lot in in allowing me that instrument to learn on when i was a teenager and uh you know i'm sure he's going to be cranking out future jazz musicians the right way yeah. telling them what to listen to that's right and you know not that i would know because i really am pretty much a, a self-taught musician in a lot of senses you know having had teachers uh, and haven't gotten to play a lot of gigs with some of the professors and teachers and stuff, but but I would say I didn't go through the the program, you know. So I don't. Well, a lot of guys haven't. Yeah, a lot of guys haven't that way at all. Yeah. Come on, Jonathan. I know that you was got great, something. Else. Oh, are we rapping? Is this a rap? Are you putting me on the spot? Are we ra- are we rapping it? Uh, I'll, it I'll give you guys good. one more question, man. We have one more. Oh shit. Got the EP. Do y'all have a list? How do you do this? I mean, I, 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 you know, since we're going, you know, I'll, I'll edit this, but I, I knew, you know, the background, just, you know, you, to me, you kind of exemplify a, a, a born and raised, you know, Memphis musician. Memphis has been through ups and downs. And, sure. and yeah, and everyone, even, even in articles I read, everyone's hopeful for a, a, a resurgence. You know, I, I heard, um, the glory days were '90s, you know, up up until 9/11, uh, up or up until when Jeff Buckley drowned. You know, I mean, there there was like a golden era happening. With see, that's so weird. I don't see anything like that. I don't know. Well, as far as like my you know, perspective is that but, the but like, '90s were a vapidly horrible time for music in general. What about '80s? I think was the '80s better? are aging way better than the '90s. As far you as know, like, grunge rock and all that stuff is bad, and 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 really. My early 20s were in the 90s, and I was like, what should have been my musical prime was robbed by this just black hole of, of weird music making. Like, I, I don't know, like the whole rock and roll thing, and just, or I don't mean that rock and roll is bad. Like, rock and roll is here to stay forever. It's what, but I think of rock and roll, I think of Chuck Berry and, you know. The Rolling Stones, not like Nirvana. Nirvana. Well, but I like some Nirvana too. So don't sure. get me wrong. But I mean, you know, just the whole flannel shirt uh, stylistically. If you look at what was like the styles of the '90s, uh, like it was just kind of non. 
for mm-hmm. lack of a better word. And I feel like it was a bleak time for me personally as a musician. Um, one of the best things that happened, though, is that I decided at some point that I wanted to really concentrate on studying jazz drumming. Right. And I kind of really, like, quit gigging as a bass player um, and just just stopped. I sold my bass amp. You know, I sold my Fodera. Oh. And I just started playing <laughs> jazz drums, man. Speaking no. of Foderas, I want to get one of Fodera guitar now. Have you seen that? that? Like, they're making the most hot guitar. Like our arch top? Like solid body or arch no, top? No, like electric. Oh, I've been Solid body, like. Like the, like, uh, like the Tom Anderson sewer kind of vibe? Kind of. But okay. they look like Foderas. One last thing. I know, f- is, as far as, so we mentioned some some names, Eric Gales, you know, why not? Um, um, yeah, I'm embarrassed. I blanked on his name, but pro- progressive fusion guitarist who passed away. Oh, Sean Lane. Thank you. I did play with him a lot. That's true. How many for for, for Sean Lane fans? And there's you know because of YouTube, more people keep discovering. See, you know, his, you look at you know. Sean. I mean, again, and and those are associations that if people look at me in that light, then I'm just going to seem like this player player. But no, no, we, we, but we've already established. You know, again, though. Well, I'm not saying that about this blog, but this is like things I've had to sort of fight my whole life oh, no, because the, the, I want to have my cake and eat it too I love all of it and to me I just look at I just want to make but that's Memphis too it's a Memphis I, thing right that ultimately is a Memphis thing yeah um, Sean was way more into like art and film and literature than trying to be a badass guitar player he just was wired in such a way that and his hand was built in such a way that like what came out of him was a thing that's kind of irreplicable by mere mortals and he was like i can't even think about what i'm doing really and he was like if it's hard for me i won't do it he looked at a lot of this like mind-bending super complicated fast things that's just broken up into small simple components sort of strung together which i think is a great way to look at just about anything but uh, I mean, what was your question about him? Well, just just I mean, for people who are like you, you've, you've already just said like people who are Sean Lane fans and maybe would associate like you just brought around like hey, arts literature. He was he was he was a dude. He was yeah. a Memphian. You happen to you happen to hit with him? Uh, yeah, I mean, he was a savant, and uh, it's interesting, man. I mean, I think about what I learned you know the music that he turned me on to that was the best besides the fact that he had like vhs copy of like that 76 weather report live at montreux jazz fest like we're talking in the 90s when we played with him so before anybody it would be years he had such a huge collection of stuff like that so that blew my mind but like uh the malagasy guitarist daguerre like uh i learned about that guy from sean or like uh srinivas the electric mandolin uh carnatic Indian classical musician. Wow. Carnotic. Um, you know, those are the things I learned from Sean. Mm-hmm. Or like Mike Lee films. You know, I don't know, just like, it, I don't think he ever showed me a guitar lick. <laughs> <laughs> that's great. I mean, that's man, great. it was so crazy, you know, to play like bass with him. And, and again, you know, man, I will say if I could just go back and do it now. Nowadays, when I play music, I feel relaxed and confident in myself, you know, and that's one of the beautiful things I think we all hope we can get to which is this, right. like well I know what I know I know how I'm going to play I'm just going to trust that the moment's going to carry me there and that my studies will bring me to this moment in time where I can leave them all behind and make this music with other people 
But right. at, the, at the time, in my early 20s, it was like I was frozen. My hands were getting tight, you know. I mean, I'll never forget playing that uh, Atlanta Institute of Music, like a guitar clinic with him as a bassist. And it was uh, Jeff Sipe was the drummer, Apartment Q258. And it was the first time that they'd ever played some of this music together. They'd played together before because Sean had sat in with the Aquarium Rescue Unit, which was the band that Jimmy Herring came from. That's um, an incredible band. Um, Bruce Hampton. Man. Um, uh, which was a band that I used to, you know, love going to see here in Memphis when they came through. Uh, but I was so nervous. Uh, there, there are YouTube videos of it, and you can watch. I just standing so still and so scared. Uh-huh. And the bass playing is so stiff. Hmm. And if I could have just taken some breaths and relaxed and known that it was going to be okay, I could have probably played a lot better because I did have the know-how but I didn't have the confidence, you know. I think yeah. that that kind of sense of assertion, you know, not domineering in a jock athletic way. Again, I think that's like a huge danger of choppy practice and playing. But just a exude a comfortableness. All right. Th- that right there is a big confirmation, if, if you don't mind me to confirm. Let me confirm that. Uh, in St. Louis, I got to study with Tom Kennedy a little bit. You know, who's Dave Weckl. Yeah, Tom, Tom's. You Speaking know, of Foderas. He, he's been he's been a virtuoso his entire life. Him and his brother Ray were just phenoms as used, and then the whole Dave Weckl, Jay, Jay Oliver, the whole thing. But I remember my first lesson with him. I said, "So, to, you know, what is it about these great bass players?" You know, we were talking, you know, because uh, he played he had played with Steps Ahead. Uh, you know, Patatucci and just, you know, yeah. running off a list of, you know, upright guys. He says, you know what? Honestly, he says, it's a, there's a state of mind that all these guys have. Uh, you can talk about a confidence, but there, yeah, there, there's a state of mind to where they're just like, it, it, that's what he was trying to describe. I, th- I think, you know, they're able to relax. And yeah, they've done all the work. They've studied. But they're also, there's a state of mind that enables them to be, uh, present with all their faculties and, 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 and without any, like you said, minus tension, minus yeah. anxiety. Yeah. yeah. Well, and something we, we touched on earlier at, at the beginning, I guess it was, um, to understand your role in the ensemble. Oh, goodness. Your instrument's role, no matter what instrument yeah. that is. Well, it's, it's funny, just, maybe this is a good place to close, but coming full circle to this, um, you know, I, like I was just saying, I didn't play bass for a long time. And as a matter of fact, I had a chip on my... Because having grown up a multi-instrumentalist songwriter and then accidentally becoming a bass player and getting a lot of accolades locally as a bass player, um, I felt pigeonholed that that was all I was ever going to be if I didn't make a choice to sort of drop that persona. Hmm. And, and to that degree, I kind of hated the bass for a long time, you know, and I shunned it and didn't want to have anything to do with it. Uh, but these days I've been playing gigs on bass again and doing sessions and I even bought a bass amp again and um, I have to say I love it more than ever and because of all my time off for unhardwiring from all the kind of BS like chop building stuff that I was trying to do as a teenager it's not that I don't still surprisingly enough I probably have more facility now but uh because of the time off and because of being a, a more well-rounded musician as a drummer and a songwriter and a guitar player, uh, which are things I was before I was ever a bass player anyway, uh, I my understanding of my role and my mindset of relaxedness as a bass player 
that place, it's like stronger than ever, than it ever was when I was just trying to be a bass player. That's wonderful. Know? And I, I want to co-op that word, relaxedness. Relaxedness. <laughs> that is an I awesome... I think it's time for us all to do some relaxing, man. My relaxedness. My sore, dude. Paul, Paul thank, thank you, man. Thank you, man. Uh, we're we're going to post your links. We're going to post cool. your blog, all your stuff. Highly recommend you all check Paul out. Man, thanks for go, talking go, to me. Go see him in person. Go see some human beings. Make some music. For sure. Hope you enjoyed this time with Paul Taylor. Uh, Jonathan and I have played with Paul. Uh, it was delightful. The interview was delightful. Interesting note, the interview was recorded at... Crosstown Arts. Crosstown Arts. Uh, Paul has an intern internship there. Uh, Crosstown Arts has several internships for artists of different mediums. Uh, I've seen the sculptors and wood makers and beat makers. And Paul has been the curator of the music studio. Um, during this uh, interview and it was a great uh, great facility hats off kudos kudos to Crosstown for uh, supporting artists in Memphis special thanks to our sponsors again Snakebite Company Redwire Audiovisual and And Ernestine and Hazel Ernestine and Hazel get yourself a sober sober